So when I say artificial intelligence and healthcare, how far up on the hype cycle do you kind of sit? Is it a lot of fluff and no substance, or is there some real world transformational opportunities that exist when it comes to artificial intelligence in healthcare? Well, at our summer summit that we held back in February, we held a panel session which was titled Artificial Intelligence Hype Versus Reality. And you'll hear a little bit more about that in just a second because we're going to be playing the audio from that session, which we held at the summit right now on this episode. And so if you did want to check out the video from this one, you can on our website. Just go to the video section of the Talking Health Tech website and there's three videos from the summer summit that you can watch for free. The rest of the sessions are available to our THT Plus members. So if you're someone that's interested in learning and growing about technology and healthcare, particularly in the Australian space, but also very relevant to anyone in any part of the world, whether you're a clinician or a vendor or a hospital executive, got a diverse community that you can join, either just yourself as an individual, but we've also got some options for companies as well. So you can check that out on our website. But right now, listen to this episode about the opportunities that exist when it comes to artificial intelligence in healthcare. Where's the low-hanging fruit? Where are the red flags? And as you'll hear in the conversation, perhaps all this hype is actually a good thing to help spur on innovation and speed up some of the controls and standardization to make it safe and effective. Let's dive in, shall we? Collaboration starts with the conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Burge, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With all the excitement and potential of artificial intelligence in healthcare, what are some of the real-world examples of its application today that can be most effectively integrated into existing models of care? What are the realistic expectations we should have of AI in health? Welcome to session five of the Talking Health Tech Summer Summit titled Hype versus Reality, Artificial Intelligence in Healthcare. I'll be moderating this session featuring Brian Mitchell, Division Leader, ANZ Region for Health Information Systems at 3M. We're using science and innovation to stimulate progress and make real impact to people and communities across the globe. Katya Bittart, the founder and CEO at Digital Health Consulting Australasia specialising in digital health innovation and transformation projects, digital health research commercialization and translation. And Nicholas the Kelson Terry, the CEO at Max Kelson, an artificial intelligence and machine learning consultancy delivering competitive advantage for government and enterprise. Kicking into the next session around hype versus reality and artificial intelligence. And uh, we also have Brian joining us shortly in the session. Uh, the irony of having some technical issues around connecting to these things. But it wouldn't be a virtual conference with 40-something speakers without one or two things. But we can keep the conversation going in the meantime, though. Uh, so for those that would probably know Nick and Katya already if they're part of the community. I'll just bring Brian onto the conversation as well now. So it's great that we've got everyone here. Thank you, Brian, also for attending too. We might kick off the conversation because we've already, there's something that, you know, is seeing some interest in the chat. We've already got people who have some perspectives to share without even hearing a word yet. But I might start off with Katya to you to kind of start this conversation. When we talk about artificial intelligence in healthcare, it can elicit a lot of I don't know, emotions of where people are at with it when it comes to 
the hype around AI and health. It's sexy, it's cool, but also that's this is healthcare. Where do you think most of the hype actually comes from when it comes to AI and healthcare? Yeah, great question and great to start off the session. I think personally, most of the hype comes with any new or emerging technologies um, is a little bit of not exactly knowing what it is, what it can do, what we can do with it, what problem it can solve and where actually the limitations are. So I guess the hype really is from there is still a lot of education and awareness that we need to work on to get everyone of a really good understanding of what is artificial intelligence in health context. I think one of the very, very um, accepted uh, division lines for health might be to look at the clinical side and to look at the more of an operational side where AI or machine learning can help. You know, there are plenty of examples out there. So clinical decision support, recognizing patterns in radiology or in other image-based fertility treatments in skin cancer and so on. And there's the operational, which means we are starting to document using our voice. We're starting to access information using voice guided. There is um, other things like optimization for billing. There is clinical coding where we're using automation and so on. So plenty of opportunity, but I think it is good to look at the operational clinical. And personally, I would put forward the clinical side is probably where there's a little bit of hype still because in reality it is quite difficult to implement a clinical decision support tool you can't just take it off the shelf and start going with it and you also need to make sure that there are enough safeguards built around it whilst the operational side we have a lot of opportunity to work smarter much much quicker so that's i think where the real application and the power of applications right now And so, Brian, you know, continuing that conversation on around the clinical aspects of artificial intelligence, it sounds like then it's really important that we find ways to make, you know, the implementation of AI easier for clinicians. It's around making the products actually work for the clinicians as opposed to the other way around. Would you agree? Yeah, yes, that's absolutely correct. I mean, if you were to sum it down into one phrase, it's giving the clinicians more time to care for the patient. That's the end goal of what we're looking at with effectively using AI today. So as Katya said before, in the operational tasks within a healthcare delivery system, that's where there's a lot of opportunity to drive value today. And it does push upstream to the clinicians treating the patients by providing them more time to actually focus on the patient as opposed to documenting or trying to ensure that the patient's history is accurately recorded. When you look at healthcare overall, and ultimately where you would want to get to with AI and why it's so difficult and complex is we step back and look at AI from the concept overall. It's so broad. And I saw one of the chat words come up that the hype was due to Hollywood. And in some respects, that could be true because AI is so broad. You can take a different perspective of it and you can harp on it forever. But in the context of healthcare, which is what we're talking about, there's two levels of AI that we're dealing with trying to bridge today. And one is very effective dealing with operational processes, and that's artificial narrow intelligence. So training the computer system to be focused on one task or one concept of tasks and doing that effectively. Then you're looking at artificial general intelligence. Well, in the clinical setting, ultimately with care delivery, if you can get to artificial general intelligence, then you're introducing reasoning. So that's enabling the clinicians to focus on patient care with a computer that's aiding them in that process of reasoning and treating the patient. And that's the one that's going to take a long time. 
it takes a long time just to get to the operational aspects. But ultimately, getting back to the question, it's to provide more time for the clinicians to treat the patients and to provide the care as opposed to the operational tasks associated with it as well. Yeah, got it. And so, Nick, bringing your kind of broader view of artificial intelligence and expertise into the conversation, also a lot of experience in the healthcare game as well, I find a lot of the hype when it comes to AI, as that's kind of the topic of this conversation, really comes around a lot more of the machine learning and deep learning tools that has the potential to replace a clinician by diagnosing better or by being a better doctor or whatever. But there's also a lot of AI that exists within healthcare using natural language processing that also has a lot of good real world application, right? Tell us a bit more about kind of what you've seen broadly in the AI space that works well in healthcare. Yeah, I think there's been a good conversation so far, which is that, you know, AI is as much a UX and clinical architecture problem as it is a technical problem. I totally agree with that. And that really the spectrum of application of modern deep learning, machine learning techniques across the healthcare sector is really sort of limitless, right? Which is why people get so excited and why the hype is probably so great is that at its core, a lot of medicine is pattern matching. And that's what deep learning happens to be really good at, particularly across non-normal modalities like images or sound for clinical notes and so on. And so you get this spectrum of applications where you can make a huge difference to billing operations, to rostering operations, all the way through to protein folding and discovering new drugs in the life sciences sector. So the hype is often driven by the latter. And I think it's important that in all these conversations, we talk about, you know, obviously what we can do in the healthcare setting today and what, you know, where the lowest hanging fruit is, which is in some of these operational use cases, some of the the use cases I'll talk about and, and many that are coming to market at the moment. But we also keep our eye on the fact that deep learning technologies enable us to do things that we've never been able to do before. We can predict how protein is going to fold and that's going to let us find drugs much faster or find drugs that we haven't been able to find before. We can look at a H&E slide and find the expression profile of a particular environment, right? And we can do that without sequencing. A human eye can't do that, but a machine can do that. So we do have these opportunities for AI to change the way that we deliver care and to do things that we haven't been able to do before. So it's important in these conversations, not to let go of the hype. I think it's important for us to remember the hype, but also think about that low-hanging fruit of what can we do today and what's really available to us. In the natural language space, you know, obviously the EHRs are, are much more popular today. There's much more clinical data out there. We're seeing natural language processing used a lot, obviously in that medical billing and coding context and taking that cognitive weight off clinicians and support staff, but also particularly in the clinical trial sector, right? So understanding, you know, looking at electronic health records and understanding you know, which patients might be suitable for a clinical trial and also for interventions that we didn't know about. During COVID, we worked with a customer that is a global provider of care and they had the issue that many providers had that patients weren't coming in to see them in COVID. And this is chronic care environment and they knew that some of their patients absolutely needed to come and see them and that they were missing those patients. And so what we were able to do is train a machine to identify those patients and give them a call and get them to come into the clinic to prevent you know, serious consequences because really they needed that proactive management of their condition. Whilst you know, a lot of patients, it's more reactive and we could leave them for a little while, but there was a certain subsection of patients that that group needed to see and that we were able to identify them and get them to come into clinic. So I think there's this really exciting opportunity around the language that we collect around our patients and what we can then go and do with that. Yeah, really interesting. And building on that then, Katya, from your own experience as well, and you touched on earlier around 
the clinical versus the admin side of things. And I know as well, you generally value the importance around understanding that workflow and working with clinicians and, and end users to solve problems. So it sounds like a lot of the, and I think this is reflected in the chat too, a lot of the, the immediate problems to be solved really exist around that administrative side of things. And it gives us a good opportunity to start implementing some of these tools and then work it through the healthcare system, would you say? I agree. Um, and even it is really taking the clinicians along and as by the term used in this session before was decreasing the cognitive load. And there are so many ways to do that without replacing the whole workflow of a clinician. So one really good example, which is more and more accepted, is to manage admission and discharge and using tools there that can help to identify high-risk patients on both sides and focus the clinical attention on those. But we are really looking at applications where it is a low-risk setting. So even if something like I'm putting this patient case on top of your list because, you know, it suggests that is probably um, a higher probability that there is a negative finding. So those things are not foolproof. We still need that human judgment coming together. But yeah, definitely lots of opportunity in the operation space to either automate or make smarter parts of the clinical workflow to allow what we all want, the clinicians to focus on the judgment and clinical decision-making too. And Brian, you know, from your own experience in working with hospitals on a day-to-day, -day, is that where you're seeing most of the need is, is in terms of collating this data, getting it right up front to be able to then allow a more effective workflow throughout? That's where you ultimately see the value carry through the entire healthcare delivery system is if you're able to get it right up front, collect the data up front, as opposed to in a lot of instances when you're starting with operational processes, you're starting in the back end because with systems that were designed to look at the information retrospectively or after the care had been provided, and then to introduce tool sets to move up towards closer to the point of care. So today technology exists so that you can start by collecting data at the point of care. You can construct the tool sets that are delivering value along the healthcare delivery chain. And then the key is how quickly can you process massive amounts of data through the algorithms that you built in those individual tool sets in order to deliver value to a level of accuracy. And so that's why with regards to a lot of algorithms that are written today that are in LP engines, they still need a massive amount of data in order to be accurate. So you can't just take them off the shelf, plug and play and expect to have optimal results from day one. Yeah. I want to come back to Gary's point, the question he raised, we'll do that in a second, but just echoing some of the, you know, what you mentioned then, Brian, there is algorithms that are available off the shelf and there's existing data that exists in hospitals, but often the expectation can be, well, Let's take something off the shelf, put it in, and then we'll see some efficiency gains. So I think that there's still a lot of work. And as John also pointed out too, which costs a lot of money to do and something that we don't have. So it's a bit of a fine balance, do you think, Brian? There's still a lot of work to be done in that space? Yes. There, I mean, there's a lot of uh, analysis that needs to be done with current workflows. And then looking at the intent of the tool set that you're going to implement and how can it be optimally used. And is the current workflow, the way it's structured, suitable for that? Or is the tool set just gonna be added and it's just another, it's another tool in the toolbox that could potentially provide value, but the workflow of the department or of the care delivery system wasn't analyzed and adjusted so that the maximum value for the tool could be gained. 
And then that also goes to where the inputs for the data are coming from in order to enable the output to be even that much more accurate, looking at where the data has come from, where the data gaps are, and how much data is needed in order for learning to truly be accurate. Nice one. So I might throw to Nick for this one in particular, when we look at, you know, some of the potential when it comes to AI generally, it might touch on some of the things that you're watching now or seen come through. There's potentially some preventative health opportunities that AI can bring as well. Yeah, I think this is a, you know, an interesting paradigm we're going to have to get our heads around. So at the moment, you know, a lot of this panel we've talked about operational improvements and that's super important. And then we sort of see the next phase of that, which is really our clinical decision support systems, which are taking existing diagnostic processes and codifying them, building systems, which test x-rays, for example. The next phase really becomes, well, as I mentioned before, what can't we do at the moment with our existing clinical systems that would increase the health of our patients? And that's not necessarily that we can't do it. It might be that we can't do it at scale or the economics don't support it. And I think preventative health is a really good example of this. Really, the, the current funding systems, reimbursement systems and scale problems lead us to you know, a system that is meant to capture some preventative health through the primary health network. But really, if we all sit back and be honest with ourselves, currently doesn't. And that technology can probably provide a lot more precision preventative health than we currently do, right? If we think about the way that we currently do screening programs, which is extremely blanket, extremely big hammer, small nail, we can drastically improve those using technologies about, you know, obviously risk profiling, whether that's using genomics or just clinical record and familial history and so on. So I think when we think about the opportunities that we have in front of us to leverage the technology to improve the health of patients and, and the population at large, that preventative piece is one of the areas that the scale that this technology gives us will allow us to make real change in the way that we deliver care. But obviously, we need to get our heads around the current funding models and the current care models, which don't quite allow that to occur and which really aren't serving our patients, I don't think, as well as they could if we took a different view with it within, in light of the technology that we now have available to us. A really interesting point. The funding point aside for a second, Cartier, I also noticed that Tam has put in the chat too. One problem often that needs to be solved in healthcare is around equity of access of healthcare services, because often a lot of these conversations don't take these points into consideration. Does AI have the potential to increase quality of access for more people to get healthcare services? Probably following on from Nick in the more preventative space, which is picking it up before someone is in the acute setting. Uh, definitely. Does it have the potential? I would definitely say yes. But also being realistic that we are talking about a population which ranges from, you know, someone who is zero of age uh, to, you know, uh, 90 or 100. And where do we see the pockets of early chronic disease management is probably more in the older age group. And is there a possibility to give a tool or use tools? Absolutely 100%. But whichever tools we are agreeing on or testing or trying have to be so simple. So again, that comes back to John Lambert's point in the chat. It's as much a user design and user experience problem as it is a modeling problem. So again, it comes really understanding when we go out of hospital, not the clinical workflow, but the patient journey, and how they usually go and access and manage their health, whether we can shift that into the out-of-hospital or more preventative space and how they could do it. 
and how we can help them to do it smarter by automating some of the tasks. Of, I don't need to read and record my temperature every single day, but I actually might have a variable that does it for me and knows when to escalate and give me an alert. So there's loads and loads of potential, but we need to work on the simplification to mm. make it um, mass appealing. And continuing on that then, Brian, thinking about, you know, theoretically that makes a lot of sense and it's good to think about the potential that it brings in terms of the real world application, the implementation of these types of technologies or how how we can help hospital and health systems think about, and, in, and even general practice, any healthcare setting, think about the implementation of these types of technologies. What are some of the, the ways you've seen that be successful in implementing some AI solutions in, in healthcare settings and things to take into mind? Yeah, so I would say one of the easiest ways for me to look at it and to explain it is, is from a view of the longitudinal journey of the patient through each care setting. So there was conversation before about how do you impact preventive care? How do you predict? All of those rely on having a complete view of a patient and the patient's condition and a series of patients with similar conditions in a population, taking all of the data associated with them, looking at outcomes and then saying, okay, well, this population is higher at risk or less at risk, like to Katja's point with elderly that tend to have more complications and comorbidities, and then put in technology in focused areas that has the learning already done with massive data sets in order to try to impact that in a positive way. That's a way to take incremental steps. But in order to truly be effective, the healthcare delivery system has to be able to also effectively link all the systems for where care is delivered. So at a primary care practice, to the acute care hospital, to rehab, post-discharge, et cetera, so that all of the data on that patient's journey is aggregated together and you're looking at it holistically. No, totally. And Nick, I think I jumped in over the top of you there in terms of what you've seen from your experiences there. No, I was just going to pick up on Katia's point and the equity access yeah. to healthcare point. You know, I think that there is a huge opportunity in care pathways, particularly in, in complex condition management where you don't have specialists. There's a great report by the Leukemia Foundation from 2019 from memory, someone can probably quote it, where they show that, you know, the number one sort of predictor of outcomes or the type of treatment you'll receive as a leukemia patient in Australia is your postcode, you know, and that's completely unacceptable, but completely understandable that some postcodes have oncologists that specialize in blood cancers and others have more general oncologists. And if you're in Mount Isa, you might not have the luxury of going down to Peter McCallum, for example. So understanding optimal care pathways and helping clinicians along where they don't see a particular type of cancer every day, but there is really great new literature out there surfacing those insights and giving a helping hand to that care pathway, I think is a really interesting use. Obviously, there's been some fairly notable failures in that space, IBM Watson Health for Oncology being one of them. But I do think it's an area that, where there's huge opportunity in the near term for AI technologies to help with the everyday care of patients and provide, from an equity point of view, similar care no matter where you are and no matter where on your care journey you, you happen to be. Yeah. And I guess piggybacking off the back of that a little bit and diverting, but it also speaks to a technical problem as well. The point that Gillian raised in the chat here around the importance of ensuring that we've got diversity in patients in considering these types of technologies that might have complex health needs or disabilities or, or might not speak English. There's the human aspect of it, of ensuring they've got access to these types of care and can contribute, whether it's part of a trial or whether it's in healthcare. But there's also a technical challenge too of, you know, if you've got data and you've got, if you're using a data set that's not from 
the environment in which you're delivering care, it needs to be trained in a different data set. Am I oversimplifying it? No, well, two things. You know, we've got anyone that here that works in skin cancer will know that skin cancer is overly prominent in Caucasian populations, but it does exist in, you know, Asian and South Asian and African-American populations. And so it's a question because none of the data sets have any representation of non-Caucasian skin types and you can't build a model based on the sort of data that you've got that will work for non-Caucasian skin types. So really at the moment, the only solution is to exclude them from your intended use. And the question then is, do you create an equity problem? I'm not going to pretend I have an answer to that, but it's a challenge that everyone that works in skin cancer would be familiar with. The other example I'd bring up is the sepsis example from Epic, where they build a sepsis model that you know performed relatively well in their validation studies, I think 80 to 90%. But when they rolled it out and someone actually went and looked at its efficacy in new environments, it fell to about 60%. And these hidden batch effects that your patient population, the way the data is recorded, your environment feed into your data can massively undermine the performance of your models and do so in a really silent way. We find it with different labs for genomic sequencing that models will not, without the necessary robustness, and we use like an anchoring technique and a whole lot of stats to try and fix these batch effects. But if you take a deep learning model that's trained on the genomic data developed from one or a couple of labs and take it to another lab, even with the same nervous sequencing machine and same sort of procedures, it will not perform because there are these batch effects in the process, the prep process, the sequencing process that that lab, the, the variant calling technology they're using that will seep into the model and totally undermine its performance. So it's important to know that these batch effects really do exist and they are generally silent failures. They will not show up in the softmax output, the, the confidence that people misinterpret out of neural networks. It will look like it's performing well, but it actually won't be performing very well. And we'll take someone actually looking at it, like the sepsis example, to realize that the performance is actually very poor in a different environment to where the training data had come from. Such a great point and such interesting knock-on effects that it has too outside of the, the technology. For the last few minutes, we might give uh, everyone an opportunity to kind of wrap up their final thoughts around hype versus reality and artificial intelligence and healthcare. Maybe we'll start with Katya for a minute and then we'll go with back to Nick and then Brian to close out. So Katya? Yeah, I would like to follow on from Nick and, and, and pick up on uh, Julian's comment there in the chat and just really close off that, you know, any application of artificial intelligence machine learning is tech within the context and the context is either a patient journey, patient pathway or a clinical workflow. Without fully understanding that, the technology will most likely fail or not do what you're supposed to do. So I think that's really, really good takeaway. The reality is you have to work hard to really get the context right. And the second thing is, I think, specifically looking at, uh, at Julian's points there, is the data input. So once you take it out of the perfect environment into the messy real-life environment, usually at the data input side is where the most problems probably start. So having diversity of really looking through the different channels and what could go wrong and taking time there and getting diverse opinions and diverse stakeholders to provide input will long-term help to actually make it successful and really do what it's supposed to do. Nicely put. Thank you. Nick, any final thoughts from your side? Yeah, I think I'll just revert to where I was at the start. I mean, I spent a lot of my time talking to, you know, regulators and panels like this where we're trying to wind back expectations and be realistic about what the technology can do and be a little bit bearish. But overall, my view is incredibly optimistic. I think it's such an exciting time in healthcare. And I think we're only really getting started for the impacts of artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning technologies in this sector. And if we do it right, we make a huge difference to millions and millions of patients' lives over the next five years. And 
So, uh, you know, I think we're at a real critical point and I think the hype's important because we've got to keep it going because we can make a real difference here. Be, be realistic of the challenges, but keep forging forwards because it's such a huge opportunity for the sector. Nice balance there. Thank you. And Brian, to close out the, the panel discussion. I think both Katya and Nick hit the nail on the head as far as key takeaways. The one that I would add in addition to those is to being able to deliver incremental wins within the healthcare delivery system. So when we talk about a lot of these concepts and we start, we look, talk from the front end to the back end, talking about the big picture, but that's a big ocean to try to boil. So looking for incremental wins keeps your stakeholders engaged within healthcare because it's complex and it's massive. Then you'll operate under the law of accelerating returns. So incremental value leading to greater value, greater value, greater value. Same thing with the amassing of data that can be used and pushing the value of the technology upstream and ultimately back into the hands of the clinicians. Love it. What a great way to finish out. Look, oh, we'll keep this conversation going, but we're going to need to leave it there. I encourage all the speakers from this session to jump into the chat and continue that conversation going. Nick, Katya and Brian, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen. <laughs>